Hey, uh, we are live on uh, ComedySchoolsRadioNetwork.com. We are now live on YouTube Comedy Channels, and we are live on Facebook Live. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening, moms and dads, aunts and uncles, cousins and brothers, mothers and others. This is Living on a Thin Line with Tony Visick. It is Saturday night, 7 p.m. Arizona time, 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, 9 p.m. Central Time, and 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, there's also Atlantic Time, where it's 11 p.m. right now. But no one in America pays any attention to that because it only takes place uh, in this continent on in Canada, or Canada, as people like to call it. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, good evening, and thank you for tuning in tonight. This is the one day of the week we are not when we are not with you at 2 p.m., we are with you at 7 p.m. So uh, we thought that we started doing this at 7 p.m. early in the uh, quarantine lockdown pandemic, um, early in March. That's when we started doing it. And uh, the thought was, man, there's just not going to be a lot for people to look at on Saturday night, except uh, their own feet as they're staring, uh, staring down at them in bed. Because uh, it is bedtime for a lot of y'all, let's be honest. Uh, so we, uh, we thought we would try to do something uh, that would be entertaining for people in the evening. So that was the idea behind it, a little Saturday night special. I have a great show for you. If you have not tuned into the program before, let me tell you how it works. Let me tell you who we are. Let me tell you what we do. Okay, uh, here's how it works. We are on three platforms. Three platforms for you to choose from in order to enjoy the uh, festivities that are about to enthrall you. Uh, we are on ComedySchoolsRadioNetwork.com. That is our flagship internet-based radio station. We are live on YouTube on the Comedy Schools channel, and we are live on Facebook Live on my personal page, Tony Visick, V-I-C-I-C-H. If you have not liked my page, Tony Visick, or if you know someone who you think might uh, benefit from uh, the mirth and wisdom that I spew forth on a daily basis, have them like that page, and that will help them find us when we decide to move forward with the entertainment. Uh, we are on three platforms, and the show is built around three things. It is built around questions and comments from you, the audience, uh, as you uh, place those questions and comments by tapping your fingers or your thumbs on your computer uh, keyboard, on your uh, face, on your uh, telephone, uh, not on your uh, not on your Smith Corona. Keep your hands off your Smith Corona. It won't do you any good. So, uh, uh, and we try to comment back. It's based on that. We show you some knick-knack memorabilia, uh, curiosity, memento, piece of work, piece of art, piece of artwork. That could be a guy's name. Artwork. Hello, everybody. I'm artwork. Um, and then we try to weave a story around it. And then we recommend two artists, our albums, uh, two artists, our piece of music based on our vast vinyl album collection or we're now starting to morph into the CD compact disc phase, compact disc phase of, uh, of, of our show. Uh, we started out going, well, you know what? We'll, uh, we'll show two albums a day. We can't play them. We don't have a music license. Uh, but we'll uh, show two albums, talk about the artists or the songs that we're recommending, see if we get people to YouTube them, listen to them, and tell us what they think. Uh, yesterday was kind of an exciting show for me because I got to showcase two brilliant artists that... Um, a lot of people don't know of one of who was ungodly popular in his time, uh, Louis Jordan, Louis Jordan, who uh, did Caledonia and uh, uh, Is You Is or Is You Ain't My Baby. And 
what we found out about the album that we featured yesterday, which I actually have still right here, uh, called uh, Somebody Up There Digs Me. And I was talking about, uh, I was talking about uh, this album yesterday and how when you listen to it, there's electric guitar and it sounds like rock and roll. Well, lo and behold, uh, the name of this album is Somebody Up There Digs Me. Uh, lo and behold, after doing a little digging and research, we found out that this album, which has so many of Louis Jordan's big hits on it, and he had huge hits all throughout the 40s and the 50s, um, that this was uh, something that they redid once he went over on the Mercury label where they kind of rock and rolled. This album was released in the 50s, 1956. Hello, Frank Gagliardi. Hello, Daniel Bros. Hello, everyone. Uh, that album, Somebody Up There Digs Me, was released in 56 when it kind of rock and rolled up a lot of Louis Jordan's songs that he'd done in the 40s. So Louis Jordan really uh, helped usher in the possibility of rock and roll in the 40s when he created something called, or was the, one of the main people behind something called Jump Blues, where he only used five or six people. And since he could be as loud as an entire orchestra with five or six people, he began to bring an end to the big band era, end to the big band era. So, and then in the 50s, they brought him over to uh, Mercury and they tried to uh, rock and roll up. Uh, let's see, uh, Kristen Fusco says the 40s, the 50s, how old are you? I am 65, but, uh, <laughs> which has nothing to do with talking about Christian music from the 40s and the 50s. I uh, was talking about Shakespeare a few weeks ago and I'm not several hundred years old, despite what you may think. Um, anyway, we talk about Louis Jordan, how to sound like rock and roll. It turns out that the guy who produced Louis Jordan, uh, in the fifties, trying to modern, help him modernize his music. And it sounded great. Uh, then went on to produce. And I said that a lot of people think that rock and roll started with Bill Haley in the Comets. And then I said, no, it didn't. It started with Louis Jordan. And I can stand by that because the man who produced Somebody up there digs me, then went over and produced Bill Haley in the Comets and took a lot of the production values that he used for Louis Jordan into the studio when he produced that first great uh, uh, group of records by, um, uh, by Bill Haley in the Comets. So uh, anyway, um, we talked about him yesterday, and we also talked about, uh, who else did we talk about? Oh yeah, we talked about uh, Shuggy Otis, who was a brilliant, brilliant guitarist. And at 15, made an incredible album with Al Cooper, and that was hardly ever heard of again. Uh, we did a little more research into Shuggy Otis, and you should check out Shuggy Otis with Al Cooper on the Super Sessions. One of those guys who, when I said, when I first heard that album, I go, why haven't we heard more from this guy? This guy's as good as Stevie Ray Vaughan or Eric Clapton or B.B. King. Turned out that he was B.B. King's favorite, <coughs> favorite guitarist at one point, that the Rolling Stones asked Shuggy Otis to join the Rolling Stones, that Quincy Jones wanted to work with him, others, and he always said no, and it turned out that what I thought was probably too true is that Shuggy Otis, uh, son of legendary uh, 1940s big band guy Johnny Otis, was, um, had a mental illness and a lot of drug addiction, and at one point ended up just doing a paper route, and in an interview I read with him, goes, look, I could have been a millionaire, but that's not what was on my mind. So uh, that's what we talked about yesterday. I just wanted to kind of recap that. Um, what else is going on here? Uh, let's see. Uh, Daniel Bro says, I thought Michael J. Fox started rock and roll. You know, that's kind of interesting. That's kind of interesting. Because in one of the Back to the Future, in one of the Back to the Future movies, he ends up playing with a band in the 50s. 
and he then plays uh, a Chuck Berry tune. And in it, it shows that he joins some high, some band playing a high school prom, okay, and uh, plays a, a Chuck Berry riff. And then in the next scene, you have um, an actor on a, on a payphone call him go, yeah, listen, hey, it's Chuck, Chuck Berry. I just heard the new sound. And it's amusing, it's amusing that in that movie, Chuck Berry's playing a guy who's just in a, in a uh, pickup band playing at a high school prom that Michael J. Vox comes in and actually plays Chuck Berry music that he learned in the future and that fr- Chuck Berry in the past hears it and that's how he creates, um, that's how he creates a, a, a sweet little 16, etc. cetera. Uh, when did Al Cooper change his name to Alice? Different, different. You know what, Paul Whitney? We used to make jokes about that when we were real high back in the 70s. Al Cooper or Alice Cooper? <laughs> Chucks. Uh, Doug, uh, Doug, uh, that's right. DJ says Johnny B. Good. Michael J. Fox plays uh, Johnny B. Good uh, with this uh, little pickup band at a high school prom. Uh, it's interesting because without meaning to, it was a rewrite of inter. It, it was a it was an inverse of actual actual history. Because once again, it showed that a white guy creating rock and roll and a black guy stealing it as opposed to a black guy inventing rock, rock and roll and then white folks uh, borrowing or stealing it. Uh, how much was, uh, uh, how blatantly was Chuck Berry imitated? He actually sued the Beach Boys over one of their songs. And I think it was uh, Everybody's Gone Surfing and won because he said it was a, a direct, uh, they directly plagiarized his song. Of course, most guitarists and musicians from the late 50s, early 60s on plagiarized a little bit of Chuck Berry. So we're going to talk all about that, talk about rewriting history in a moment. But we're going to start out with, we're going to start out with uh, uh, a little bit about history right now and the rewriting of it. No, that's the wrong picture. Um, I walked downstairs. We have a two-story house. That's why I walked downstairs. Uh, I could have fallen down the stairs, I guess, at this age. Um... I could have rolled down the stairs. I could have hopped down the stairs, but instead I walked downstairs. And lo and behold, what was on the TV downstairs? One of my all-time favorite movies, The Searchers. The Searchers, starring Jeffrey Hunter, Ward Bond, Vera Miles, Harry Carey Jr., Harry Carey Sr.'s wife, and an actor named John Wayne. And the movie was made, was directed by... None other than John Ford. There has been, uh, The Searchers is considered by uh, movie experts, movie panels, movie lovers as one of the, the, it's been called the greatest Western of all time. When you first watch The Searchers, you may not think that. But if you watch it a second or third time, it grows on you the way that other movies seldom do. There is something real and authentic and honest and painfully and achingly beautiful and, uh, and brutally honest, in the movie The Searchers. The movie The Searchers is about a guy, Ethan, I forget the last name, uh, who uh, comes home from the Civil War, comes home to Texas, and finds out that his uh, niece, Debbie, has been kidnapped by the Comanches. Now, you might not know anything about the Comanches either, but at one time, right near where we are, even where we are here in Phoenix, this area was known as Comancheria, the empire of Comancheria. The Comanches had a vast empire throughout the United States that encompassed all of Texas, a good part of Oklahoma, New Mexico, and chunks of Arizona. 
And they ran Comancheria. They fought with uh, the Spanish. They fought with the Mexicans. They fought with white people. They eventually lost. Uh, one of the stories, one of the, uh, I say great, it's not like great, like it's cool. One of the great stories coming out of Comancheria and the uh, war, uh, everybody thinks about the Revolutionary War. Everybody thinks about the Civil War. Nobody thinks about it. And they say, well, those were the wars that were fought on American soil. Uh, the Plains Indian Wars. But there was the war between the United States and Comancheria. There was a war with Spain and Comancheria, Mexico and Comancheria, and uh, the United States. One of the uh, uh, legendary uh, true stories is the story of Cynthia Parker. Cynthia Parker was the daughter of white settlers who was kidnapped by the Comanches during a uh, raid on a village in Texas. Many years after she was, uh, no, a little bit past 1812. You call it, talk about the War of 1812, Daniel Bros, but no, no one ever does. I was making my point with a subjective truth to, to achieve an objective reality. Uh, she was uh, rescued by a man named Charlie Goodnight during a skirmish with the Comanches many years later. Captured as a small child, was now a young adult with two sons and brought back to Texas, brought back to white, supposedly civilized society, where she promptly tried to escape, and escape again, escape again, and had been a, uh, a part of the Comanche tribe. She had been married to a Comanche chief and kept, uh, and kept trying to escape, and was, uh, they kept finding her and bringing her back, and she was quite miserable in her heroic rescue. One of her sons became the, one of the last great chiefs of uh, Comancheria, Quanah uh, Parker, and was the guy who actually negotiated the truce between the Comanches and the United States and lived well into the 20th century and lived quite well, as a matter of fact. So, the searchers, starring John Wayne and Ward Bond and Jeffrey Hunter and Vera Miles and Harry Carey Jr. and uh, uh, many others, directed by John Ford, is loosely based on that story. In the movie The Searchers, John Wayne plays a, uh, good evening, Laura Muller, plays a racist who we're never quite sure, we're pretty darn sure, that he only wants to go and rescue Natalie Wood from the Comanches to kill her because it's better that she's dead than live that way. And Jeffrey Hunter, who uh, plays her brother in the movie, uh, insists on, a, on accompanying John Wayne and they, uh, um, because he wants to rescue his, uh, his uh, little sister. So the movie spans years and years and years from the time that, uh, and the, of course, she, the, uh, little Debbie is played by Natalie Wood in The Searchers. Eventually, they do rescue her, and when we think that John Wayne's going to kill her, he actually picks her up in his arms and goes, let's go home. It is a great film. It is one of the best films ever made. And I know that there's a lot of talk about canceling John Wayne. So tonight, by the way, is our knickknack, is our commemorative thing. We have here a picture of John Wayne. This picture, by the way, is not from the Searchers. This picture is from Red River, movie that introduced the world to the great Montgomery Clift, where Montgomery Clift played the uh, uh, the antagonist or the protagonist against John Wayne's antagonist, and that was a Howard Hawks film. A lot of people watching this 
now or then a greater number of people not watching this want to erase John Wayne from the collective memory of America. So let's, uh, let's clear up a couple things right, right away. I'm a liberal. I've been a liberal my whole life. I campaigned for McGovern. Okay, I campaigned for Clinton. I voted for Hillary Clinton. I voted for a variety. I voted for Democrats. I voted for every type of Democrat that you could think of. And I love John Wayne movies. I know that John Wayne was a virulent right-wing man. I know that he said some things that uh, I totally disagree with or might even be appalled, not definitely would be appalled with in an interview in a Playboy magazine in 1971. But keep this in mind, those of you who want to erase the story of John Wayne, those who want to erase the way Westerns are put together, those of you that only want to watch movies and films and read books and magazines that are written and produced by good people. Red River is great. Walter Brennan, no stranger ever good news to me. Yeah. The Searchers was directed by John Ford. And John Ford was one of the greatest liberals in Hollywood. John Ford, who'd been making movies ever since the silent era, made 22 movies with John Wayne. John Ford, a hardcore Democrat and a liberal, made movies with John Wayne, a hardcore right-wing conservative. Without John Ford, we may have lost more the voices of more great art, art, uh, artists in the 40s and 50s than we did. And we lost a lot of great artists, writers, directors, actors, musicians in the 1940s and 50s than you can imagine due to their version of cancel culture. The version of cancel culture then was against communism, socialism, the Reds. Pink diaper babies. And if your name was published in the Hollywood Reporter in the late 40s, early 50s, and they said that you might have been a red, then your career was effectively destroyed. Uh, movie studios would see it and go, you know what? We're not going to risk the entire studio over uh, one writer or one director. Let's just uh, get rid of them. Let's get rid of them. And careers were destroyed overnight, not just by the Hollywood Reporter, but by... Um, other magazines, etc. There was a concerted effort to destroy people over their political beliefs in the 40s and 50s. And many lives were destroyed. Careers were destroyed. There were suicides. There were deaths. There was despair in the 40s and 50s as conservatives set out to silence the voices of liberalism. It got so bad that Cecil B. DeMille, I, you know, I think that a lot of people would go, oh, you know, Cecil De- should we cancel his films? Well, I, I don't know who he is anymore. And those of us that do know him go, oh, I don't know. I don't see why. Cecil B. DeMille was an important, important member politically in the Hollywood movement, along with being a great Hollywood director and producer. And he held a meeting. There had been a meeting of film directors in New York, film producers, uh, heads of uh, movie studios who all got together in New York at one point and came up with a list of all the people they were going to get rid of from their studios because they might be liberals. You might be a liberal. You might be a communist because they had known communists. They had known uh, uh, socialists. They had in the 1930s when over 25% of this country identified as socialists maybe gone to a communist party meeting. 
John Wayne was part of that movement to get to out communists from Hollywood. And it was tough to stand up to. Uh, Lauren Mulder, Woody Allen's the front. Yes, great movie dealing with those issues. Oddly, Lauren, don't you find it odd that Woody Allen's the front is one of the great stories told about the time of the Hollywood blacklist in the 40s and 50s and that, Hol- and that Woody Allen is now a target of cancel culture. Cecil B. DeMille had a meeting. And he had a meeting where he wanted everyone, it was a produced films or directed films. He goes, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have anyone who works on any of our films sign a loyalty oath. Loyal to the United States against communism. I don't know the exact wording of it. But Cecil B. DeMille held up a piece of paper, a document. And he said, we're going to have everyone sign this. And if they don't sign it, they won't work on that particular film. And we're going to let everybody know they won't sign it. And they'll never work on another film. Now, keep in mind, there was not really an independent movie uh, industry uh, in the 40s and 50s. If you were going to make movies or television, you were going to make them in Hollywood, baby. You were going to make them in Hollywood. Uh, Bob Rocky was though the commie meetings were like Tupperware meetings. Uh, yeah, you know why? Uh, no, they were the opposite. They were more like the meetings that uh, the right wing was having because why were right-wing meetings trying to destroy the careers of left-wing and liberal writers, movie directors, and producers like Tupperware meetings? Because they were trying to put a lid on people. Yeah, we got a little joke in there. Um, <laughs> During that meeting, that historic meeting with Cecil B. DeMille said, we're going to have everybody sign a loyalty oath. John Ford stood up. Now, John Ford was an Irishman, a proud Irishman. John Ford got up, and he was a two-fisted drinker. Started drinking in the morning, stopped drinking at night. Tough as nails. Worked, risked his life, saying he was making a documentary right before America entered the war, where he went around and filmed Japanese installations on islands throughout the Pacific. Made movies for the government to help defeat Nazism. John Ford stood up at that meeting and he said, my name's John Ford and I make Westerns. Now, there wasn't a person in that room who did not know who John Ford was. John Ford was at the height of his powers as a director, the height of his popularity as a director. My name's John Ford and I make Westerns. And then he looked at Cecil B. DeMille, who was running the meeting, and said, no one here is going to deny Cecil, your contribution to our industry and what we do. We wouldn't be who we are today without you. But I don't like you. And I don't like what you're doing. And no one's going to have to sign any damn loyalty oath to work on a movie of mine. And with that, John Ford, drunkard, Irishman, liberal, one of the greatest storytellers in the history of storytelling, a hardcore Democrat, who made movies with a right-wing Republican helped begin to break down the odious and horrible and oppressive philosophy of blacklisting people in Hollywood in the 40s and 50s and 60s. So you can cancel John Wayne movies if you want, but you got to remember that you're also canceling movies made by one of the greatest liberals of all time when you cancel those films. Maybe you should just enjoy the story. All right.
So uh, I just thought I'd talk about that. Uh, there was a, uh, some talk. We live out. Uh, I think it's, it, it's an interesting thing, maybe to me, not to you. That I um, uh, always liked John Wayne movies. Listen, I was a method acting guy. Marlon Brando is the greatest actor ever lived. Right after him is James Dean, Paul Newman. You know, I studied method acting at the Strasbourg Institute with a bunch of cummies <laughs> in the 70s. Uh, those that were left. Uh, that, uh, that whole blacklist and movement tore that community of artists and actors apart. That's a different story for a different time. But I always thought that John Wayne was the greatest movie star. And maybe it's because... On Saturdays, when I was a little kid, and I was doing my thing in the house, and we were all, me, my brothers and I were off school, and my mom uh, uh, was just doing a little something in the kitchen around the house, and my dad was off work. On our television was oftentimes John Wayne movies all day. Tarzan movies or John Wayne movies. And I watched John Wayne movies, and at first as a kid, I didn't feel like watching them. I didn't really pay any attention to them, but as I got older, I did. And maybe it's because John Wayne movies remind me of my father. And they remind me of a time when my father was alive. And they remind me of a time when my father was happy. And maybe it's because when I got older and I was touring around the country and I'd be sitting in a hotel room with nothing to do, flipping around channels, all of a sudden I'd come across some old black and white movie. I remember this movie from when I was a kid. And watch it again and go, damn, this is a really good movie. This is well written. This is well acted. This is well directed. Who, uh, it's a John Wayne picture. It was a John Ford movie. You got to remember sometimes when you're just treated that you can't, you're not just can't, that if you really try to cancel someone's memories, you're also canceling that person and you might be canceling some of the most important stories you'll ever hear. Because if it wasn't for John Wayne, I wouldn't know about, I wouldn't have dug in and found out about Cynthia Parker. And if I hadn't dug in, and uh, looked at uh, Cynthia Parker, the story of Cynthia Parker, I wouldn't have known about the history, uh, a big important part of the history of our country. Um, Lauren Molliver, I don't know that Elmo Lincoln was the first Tarzan. It may have been the first full-length feature Tarzan. And I, like you, have always thought that. That in the silent film era, a guy named Elmo Lincoln, who was a huge star, uh, played Tarzan. Because we all know Tarzan course from Johnny Weissmiller those became the greatest uh, uh, and the end-all be-all of, John, of uh, Tarzan movies to you and I um Marion Francis Marion Francis you're gonna have to fill me in on that one Lauren Daniel Bro says we need to charge $120 for this therapy uh, about <laughs> about your dad okay all right um anyway uh I, I should start charging you $120 an hour Daniel for the time that I take reading your posts. <laughs> it's an odd thing, ladies and gentlemen, that, uh, that, I, uh, uh, that I bring this to you right now because um, I don't know what the mathematics of the universe are. The smartest, uh, two of the smartest people I know are on here right now, Lauren Molliver and Daniel Bros. Lauren in the field of, uh, uh, of the law and Daniel Bros in the field of science, our computers, our math, our algorithms. Okay, but there is a math that actually, when all put together, becomes a music to the universe. There is a language to the universe that forms the universe. And every once in a while, we only pick up the faintest threads of that language and that math, and they still don't make any sense to us. So we need human stories to see us through. And that's why John Ford is important. Um, 
At 45 years of age, I started ComedySchools.com. I started my workshops first in San Diego and then out here in Phoenix, Arizona, later in Los Angeles, New Mexico, etc. have now settled full-time in Phoenix and throughout the world on Zoom. 45. And later on, I built a house uh, to be an investment. Is now It was a house and now it is my home. And that home is in Maricopa. And we discovered later on that just down the road from us, about five, six, eight miles, which is down the road when you get out in this part of the, this neck of the desert, not even this neck of the woods, is the Red River Cattle Company. Because John Wayne had bought a working ranch that still exists today in Maricopa. John Wayne spent a lot of time in Maricopa. How much time did John Wayne spend in Maricopa? The name of the road that you take on the way to my house is John Wayne Parkway. So my favorite actor, I take a road named after my favorite actor to get to the town that I now live in, where John Wayne was one of the most prominent citizens. To live in a house I was able to buy because a business I started with four, when I was 45, on, and this house sits on a street called Barbara Lane, which was my mother's name, my favorite actor, to my mother, to a house where the address is 45. 666. So I don't know what all the math to it is, but I just know that there's a message and a math to the universe well beyond anything that we can truly comprehend. Uh, what I just get? I just got the, uh, I just got the uh, five minute sign. Is that where we're at, Cheryl? Am I wrapping up? Shirley? Show producer Shirley. Oh, oh okay. I said, are we wrapping up? Yeah. Okay. Oh, you know what? I got to wrap up. We were having a good conversation here. Uh, Valerie Fisher CM says, John Wayne was always on my house too uh, growing up. Uh, Lauren Muller says, Marion Morrison was John Wayne's real name. Yes, it was. Not Marion Francis. Uh, all right, you know what? I didn't get to anything today that I was planning on. Uh, I did not plan on the show being about this, but um, I thought it was important to say. That was important to say. Remember this. Oftentimes, you're watching a John Wayne movie. You go, oh, he was this. Remember, they were directed produced and written by some of the greatest uh, uh, liberals to have ever lived and some of the finest Democrats you could ever meet. That's it. That is our show for the evening, man. Thanks for hanging in with me. Thanks for listening to that, that long unwinding, but I just thought that it needed to be said. I will be back tomorrow with a, with a funny show, with a show about me. I had two great pieces of music here that once again deal with history, okay, and important. They're so important to American history and American culture. And American Values, two pieces of music by two distinctly different artists making music uh, uh, not at the same time, but a long time ago. All right, that's it. That's our show. We'll be back tomorrow at a regular time, 2 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, Arizona time. We hope that you stay safe, relatively sane, and healthy until then. You've been watching Living on a Thin Line with Tony Visick.